Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 343 Podcast, where we work tirelessly to elevate the level of discourse and practitionership here in American soccer. Today, we once again have Joey Cassio on the line to discuss competition. What does competition actually mean? And more specifically, what does it mean for coaches to create a competitive environment within their teams? There's a lot to dissect here because it's not just about the level of your opponents, the level of the league you happen to play in, or even the level of your teammates. No, no, no. There's a lot that goes into this and a lot that the coach has control over, but they've got to get everybody on board. In particular, if you're a youth coach, you have to have the parents on board one way or another. And it's not like you're going to convince them fully and completely because there's always issues that crop up. You might be in paradise with a parent for a week or a month or a year. Hell, you might even get them for multiple years. But eventually, that paradise is no longer a paradise. And then what do you do? How do you bring them back into the fold? And that's just with one parent. What if you have a coalition of parents on your hands? In any case, I hope you enjoy this one. But first, please take a moment to listen to what sponsors this episode. It's a set of products and services that can definitely help you out if you're in this ecosystem. Have you ever wondered why so many professional soccer players had a parent who was also a pro? Yes, yes. One can cite nepotism and the network that parent must also have. No question that's part of it. No question. But the kid also had to be at least good enough to a certain base level. And that's also where a former pro or an exceptional mentor gives the kid an unfair advantage. Why? Well, because they know what it takes and what specific things are important when it comes to the technical, tactical, physical, and also critically important mental side of the equation. Meanwhile, parents who don't have that background are stuck trying to navigate a complex system they aren't experts in and also trying to navigate a flood of never-ending information online, most of which, by the way, is really bad information and really bad advice. Next thing you know, years and years have gone by of you investing countless hours trying to figure out what's actually going on and how to best guide your kid. And by the time you figured out some important things, it's too late. Your kid is already pretty much done with soccer or too far behind to catch up. We've seen it happen to hundreds of players we've coached from eight years of age up to and including current professionals. Parents, you have a huge influence over whether your kid, quote unquote, fulfills their potential or not. That's why we developed the 343 Masterclass for you, the parents. The goal is to give you tools in one place so that you can substantially and relatively quickly close the gap with those parents who happen to have a lifetime of professional experience within this sport. Tools that help you far better discern truth and forgive the French from bullshit in the player development ecosystem and tools that enable you to actually train your own kid as well if you'd like to do that. Please do your kids a favor. All it takes is going to 343masterclass.com, getting on the email list, and we'll send you enrollment information. Now, for all you coaches out there, you can join over 1,000 of your colleagues by getting aboard the 343 Coaching Education Program. You can find both free and premium options for you at 343coaching.com. Lastly, if you're coaching 7v7, we've got you covered there as well. 
go to 7v7coaching.com. Critically important, these solutions for coaches, for parents, for players are offered from people who have actually done the work and have an unprecedented track record in the United States. All right, let's get into today's episode on competition. Okay, kick us off, dude. Kick us off with what it is that you have in mind. Well, <clears throat> we've met a couple of times since we last did the podcast, and we always talk about different topics. And something that came up in conversations when we met was the topic of competition within youth soccer here in America, but maybe not as to what people may think. I think when people talk about competition a lot here in the States, it's always about, oh, who are the other teams that you're playing? What league are you playing in? What flight are you playing in? Whether it's a league, whether it's a tournament. And I think that there's a lot that's missed when it comes to the daily environment that the players are in and the competition that is necessary in those environments. So we talked about discussing the value in competition in the daily team environment or club environment and how important that is for these youth players, you know, when they get to their careers beyond club soccer, and it may not have anything to do with soccer. It could be they're in some other field and the value that they get from having to compete in their daily soccer environment and how that can benefit them in all facets of life once they become an adult. So yeah, we, we wanted to talk about that. No, perfect. Okay. First off the context, we're talking youth soccer here in the States principally. I mean, we can kind of foray into the international arena if we choose to do so. Something that immediately comes to mind, which people here talk about as well, is the level of a player's peers within their team. And that is, for instance, if all the players are good, then that sort of somehow implies that there's competition. Yeah. Versus if there's a huge range the best player to the worst player, if there's a huge spread there, then there isn't competition. Something to that effect is, I think, what people would think about when they're considering the daily environment. But as I'm sure you know, something is missed there. And that is, from my perspective, setting expectations. Yes, because even if you have all equally talented players or relatively so in the daily environment, if you just let them do whatever it is that they want to do. Then on the weekends, for instance, you have kind of an equal playing time sort of philosophy thing. Then I don't know how competitive the daily environment actually is. Um, I don't know if I framed it up very well, but maybe take it from there. Cause I know you have a lot to say with respect to there's a lot more involved, right? Right. There's so many different things I think that we can talk about. I think when it comes to the coach, yeah, you have, maybe there's a range in the roster. And I think maybe the more talented players, they expect to play. Whatever happens in the training sessions, whether they're there, whether they're not, whether they're training well, whether they're giving the effort, and it can become a problem. Those players expect to play. If you try to hold the players on the higher end of the roster accountable for maybe not training well or not displaying the attributes that are necessary for the team to play with their sort of playing style, that creates major friction. And I think a lot of that is missed. I don't think everybody understands the value behind holding these players accountable wherever they are on the roster for things maybe that they're falling short in. It could be so many different things, Gary. It could be their attendance at practice. It could be, you know, they're not 
they're not showing a good rhythm with their teammates in terms of how the team wants to play as a collective group. It could be that they're not giving the necessary effort that the coach is requiring of the team and they find themselves on the bench. But all coaches, I'm sure, can relate to this. You do that, depending on who you do that to in your team, you could have major problems. And then the lessons that these kids are learning, you know, from those decisions that the coaches make, it has huge ramifications on the players, you know, yeah. maybe a little bit later on in their youth career or beyond that. If they try to become a collegiate player or even a professional, if they were sort of catered to all of their youth careers, I think naturally there's going to sort of expect that later on. And when that isn't the case, I think they have a, a big problem with it. Yeah. Let's zoom in on that particular player profile, the one or two best guys on the team or the three best guys on the team. Let's zoom in on that. And then we'll zoom in maybe the guys who have a long way to go, who are kind of bringing in the, the tail end, what that looks like for them. And then maybe finally zoom in on, yeah, the player that's in the middle, right? Let's say you have an 18 person roster, top three, let's focus on the top three real quick. And there's a couple avenues here. One avenue is if those most talented players find themselves in a pay-to-play environment and they are actual payers, that's one thing to discuss. And then the other thing to discuss is what if those three players aren't paying? Maybe they're scholarship players because they are the talented ones. Yeah. So you have these two avenues, the first of which I think is pretty self-evident that if their parents are paying, then there's even more sense of entitlement that they should be playing irrespective of attendance, irrespective of level of effort during the week, irrespective of a whole bunch of things. And then maybe you can contrast that with if they are scholarship players, is there still that sense of entitlement? How much so? I mean, what's the difference there if there is any, Joey? So maybe we can just talk about that real quick is the sense of entitlement if it's pay to play and if they're not pain? Oh, that's a difficult question. I think, yeah, when, I think in general, when, when a family is paying, I think they look for certain things to validate that they're getting value for their money. And then when their kid is talented or one of the better kids on the roster, I think it goes a little bit further as to what they're looking for to validate that they're really getting value for what they believe their players should be getting. Playing time, a big one. They look at the rest of the roster. Do they think that the players are challenging their player? I do think that there's maybe some entitlement as to, yeah, my kid should be playing the whole game. I've seen some situations where a player comes off for five minutes and it's a big problem, you know, mm -hmm. and when a coach is battling that, man, it makes it so difficult to give these kids what they really need. But yeah, I think in general, I think it is different. I think maybe the, the talented player that is paying there's more of a demand where I think maybe the, the talented player that's on a scholarship, maybe there's a little more humility there and mm -hmm. they're not so quick to maybe be so demanding because financially they're, they're not paying. Or there's also the situation where when some families are not necessarily financially invested, it's easier for them to pick up and leave. It's not a big deal. You know, they haven't invested anything in the team or the club. And so, eh, this isn't working. So let's, let's get out of here. No problem. Got it. And if you put yourself in the parents' shoes for a second, why would they be, why would there be such a problem if you're subbing their most talented son or daughter or whatever the case may be out for five minutes? Let's say it's a 60 minute game or a 90 minute game, whatever. Let's say they get subbed out 
let's say they play 80% of the minutes. Why would they be upset if 20% of the time they're off the field? Yeah, I think they struggle to maybe understand that their kid should come off at all because they're the best player on the team and they can make a difference. I guess it depends on the game, right? Maybe if the team is winning 5-0 or something, it's like, oh yeah, this game's done, it's over. You know, let's bring little Johnny off the field, no big deal. Let's give some other guys some time. But if it's a competitive game, yeah, I could see how that'd be a big problem. Like this is one of the best players. He can make the difference for us in this game. He can win us the game. And I think that can be the focus a lot of the time where, hey, maybe the kid didn't do his job. It could be one play, two plays. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. And there needs to be a message sent to the player so that he learns his lesson and you pull him off. That is necessary. That is yeah. good for that player. That's valuable for that player. Yeah. Now, so the listener doesn't get it twisted here because some people will go directly to, oh, what do you mean? They didn't obey you, the coach, you know, and you, he made two mistakes. Maybe he was trying to be creative or taking risks, you know, and, and that's why you subbed him off. No, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about maybe a player who clearly is not giving their all or clearly not being a team player or clearly, I mean, certain values and principles, right, Joey? We're not talking about a player making mistakes and that's why they're being subbed off, correct? Correct. We've talked about this before. I think when you're developing a team, the team has a certain framework, right? It still allows all the individual players to express themselves, have their personalities, take risks, be creative. But when you step outside that framework, it's a big hindrance to the team and how they're trying to operate. And I think that's when a player needs to learn that, hey, th there's a framework in place and yeah, you need to do your part within that framework. And when you don't, there needs to be a consequence for that. Yeah. Interestingly, you mentioned moments ago about if the game was competitive, maybe it's a one goal difference, maybe that's still tied or something and you're subbing off the best player that perhaps the, I want to say anger, although sometimes parents do get angry, right? Uh, the, what's the right word? The displeasure of the parent of that player being subbed off. And the rationale is, well, he's the best player and we haven't won the game. He can make the difference, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why are you subbing him off? So it's about winning the game, right? And so it's kind of interesting here when we always talk about coaches always wanting to win and win at all costs and stuff like that. Here's an example where maybe a coach isn't as interested in winning at all costs if they're subbing out their best player, right? So the pressure that coaches feel in this example is actually from the parents. It's not the coach's own ego or the club's directive that you have to win at all costs. It comes from parent pressure to actually win games. And I think in general, the sort of view of the American youth soccer culture is very short term. And I think that's where coaches have the biggest challenge is striking that balance, trying to get results in the short term, but also trying to do what's best for the players to set them up to be successful in the long term. Like we're talking about here, trying to just send a message to a player that, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. There needs to be a consequence for this, which is going to help them in the long term. It may make the team suffer in the short term. And that yeah. I think is difficult for people to grasp. I think there's a big problem with being willing to suffer in the short term to gain in the long term. Gary, nobody likes to suffer, man. Nobody likes to <laughs> suffer. That's just the truth. <laughs> 
It's true, man. It's so, it's so goddamn true. So great. If we come up with any other thoughts about the top three players on the roster and how this applies to them, we'll circle back, obviously. But let's take us through the bottom three guys on the roster. What's the psychology there? How can you make it a competitive environment? Because I'm presuming that if you're the bottom three guys, for lack of a better phrasing, almost by default, they're feeling competition, no matter what, because everybody's better than you. So what's to be done there? Yeah, I think the decisions that a coach has to make is you obviously want to give those players moments to develop, right? To maybe try to close the gap between themselves and the middle tier of the roster. And to do that, they need time, they need minutes, but you have to find the balance to where it's not a detriment to the team. Because like we just talked about, if the team is suffering in the short term, because these players are getting a significant amount of minutes, well, you're going to hear from the middle and the top end of your roster. Why are these kids playing minutes? And the way I see it is, if those kids can close the gap, it provides more competition to the middle and maybe the top a little bit, but it provides more competition to the guys in the middle. And that's healthy for them. They need that competition. For those three players, maybe that you give them five minutes a game, they don't really get an opportunity. You know, yeah, you're working in training, but they need minutes in the game to try to close that gap. Eh, then the gap probably remains for the most part. And then the middle tier, probably they understand like, hey, these guys are never going to play, so I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm safe. You know, whatever happens, I know these guys aren't going to be a threat to me. And again, in the long term, that cannot be healthy for some of these players that operate in the middle of the roster. The more that the coach can try to balance out the competition, elevate the players on the bottom end closer to the middle tier, elevate the guys in the middle tier towards the top end and provide competition across, you know, the whole of the roster, the better it is for everybody. Yeah. But I think each family views through the lens of their own individual player where the parent or the coach, I mean, he is looking at the collective and trying to build a collective and create a culture where there's competition within the group. And you have to always be trying to push buttons every day in training and games. You're constantly looking for the right buttons to push to make it as competitive as possible within your group so that these kids feel like, you know what, hey, this kid... He could take minutes from me. I have to continue to work. I got to show up. I got to work hard. I got to put in the effort. I got to listen. I got to try to execute, you know, what our strategy and plan is as a team. Yeah. That's, that's a difficult job. No, it's super hard, man. You have to be a psychologist as well. There's man management when there's grown adults. And then there's management when there's, you know, post pubescent teens. And then there's a, a sort of different sort of management also when, when you're talking about those earliest of ages. So it's a hard job, man. It's a hard job because I also think you have to balance for it to not be a charity. If you're looking to create a competitive environment, you also don't want to gift minutes either. Even though everything that you said is, in my opinion, correct. What's your philosophy with respect to maybe those bottom three guys, since they're going to get limited minutes, generally speaking? What's your philosophy on maybe having them, hopefully your club might have a second team or something of that nature for them to maybe go to the second team at times or for a whole season or for whatever, a tournament or whatever the case may be so that they might be able to get a full game and not be subbed or get 80% of the minutes on that lower level team. What are your thoughts there? I think it's a great thing. And in my experience, you know, when you first start to try to do that, <laughs> there's a lot of 
friction there too, because it's seen as a negative a lot of the time uh, from the families. Like, how do you not think my kid's good enough? You know, it's a problem. And you, as the coach, you have to manage that. And so when you decide to do that, there's going to be a lot of conversations that you have to have to try to explain that, no, it's, it's a good thing. It's not a negative. It's a good thing. They need to play. They go the second team. They're probably one of the better players on that team. They're getting minutes. They're continuing to play. And it allows them the opportunity to try to work on the things that, you know, as the coach, you're trying to teach them. They can focus on those things, trying to do it at a good level against maybe, you know, lesser competition. Good. It, maybe they're able to master it a little bit better. So then when they come back, to training with the first team and trying to prove that they can do it in games with the first team. They're a little bit better at it. Of course, these things take time. And I think it's not just going to take one time going down with the second team and getting minutes with the second team. It's going to take a handful of opportunities to do that, to show just the slightest bit of progress. And I'm sure the coach will notice it, but it might just be something small that the coach will notice from being able to go down and play with the second team. And that's a good thing. So I think it's a great idea. And I think in personally, in, in my work, we're trying to do it more. This is something that we're trying to address right now, creating more competition within each team. And then, yeah, the players that aren't getting minutes, they go down. And then that creates competition in the second team. I think maybe in general, a lot of club soccer, a lot of these teams operated in isolation. And it wasn't clubs being structured to operate as a collective. And when you change that, there's a lot of education that comes with that. You have to educate people as to the benefits to doing these sorts of things. And I think in my case, at least, I think that's where we are. We're in the process of educating as to what the benefits are to it. Yeah. And, and I think that's a big need in the marketplace. I don't think that clubs in general and individual coaches in general, frankly speaking, do a good job on the education front because, and I'm not blaming them, a lot of it has to do with, well, one is hopefully the club and or the coach in question has the competency to really understand quote unquote player development and has maybe had the experience to see an entire cradle to grave situation and hopefully multiple times. And what do I mean by that? I mean, the club having the institutional knowledge and the coach as well of having seen a cohort of players from U9, U10, U11, whatever the case may be, all throughout their youth career and then graduating from youth and seeing what that trajectory looked like and how they ended up coming out the other end of the pipe. Yeah. Because if a particular coach, let's take a newbie coach, for instance, who has no concept of this whatsoever, how can they possibly do parent education and be effective at it if they don't even know, Joey? They, ha they have no idea what is good for the player, or what is not good for the player. So that's a huge topic in and of itself because a lot of clubs also don't know. There's a lot of experience. Maybe a, cl a youth club has been in existence for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Well, I might be exaggerating a bit because Youth club soccer here in the States really got going in the late 90s. It started picking up considerable steam. But still, from then to now, let's say there's 20 years of history there. So that's more than enough time to see a lot of players come and go. But I don't think the club in general is in the business of maximizing player development. That's not the business model of youth soccer clubs in this country. And again, that's due to not having promotion relegation at the pro level, a topic for another day. <laughs> it, it always comes down to that, right? But since it's not 
their business model to maximize player development, it's not like there's somebody or a team of people at the club really studying and trying to figure out the player development puzzle. And if nobody's doing that and nobody really cares all that much about that, then they also don't have the competency to do parent education, if that makes sense, because they haven't been paying attention all that much. Sure, they can cite, oh, well, look, we have all these college scholarships that were doled out, so we know what we're doing, we know what we're talking about, but no, they really don't. It's just a numbers game. You know, a club might have 50 youth teams, and statistically speaking, you're going to get a bunch of college scholarship guys coming out the other end some way, somehow, just because of sheer numbers and talent and things that have nothing to do with what the club actually did during that player's trajectory. So parent education, like you're suggesting, that would be awesome. It's like the holy grail, but nobody has the incentive to do it and do it well, especially because, it, and you know, because I know you do parent education, Joey, it's incredibly time consuming and energy consuming and still not perfect. You still encounter problems and it's repetitive. You have to do it over and over and over and over again with every new batch of parents. And you have to continue reinforcing the messages. And there are many on a weekly basis with parents, with all your teams, even if they've been with you two or three or four years, they are still subject to these emotional swings, depending on how the team is doing, how their particular Johnny or Susie is doing. And they revert back to their pre-education selves, and you have to put out that fire all over again and do the re-educating all over again. It's a difficult problem, Joe, and you know I've been working on a solution to this, and we haven't publicly launched it yet, but I don't envy you coaches, man, and you're not paid enough to do that either, not even remotely paid enough. You're expected to be a teacher and a mentor and a role model and all this stuff for these young kids. And you're supposed to do it in front of the audience that is their parents and you're being judged by parents and you're supposed to do parent teacher conference every week, every week. It's a parent teacher conference and you're paid less than school teachers are, so, but you do way more than school teachers do. It's you guys don't get enough praise. And huh, actually I take that back. You don't get any praise. You are vilified by the American soccer media and the American soccer public. It's a wild, wild profession, Joe. I don't know if you yeah. have something to comment on, on that. No, I think when it comes to the education piece, Gary, there's obviously an established sort of path that is perceived by the American soccer family. I mean, they're, they're the customer, right? They're in this pay to play model. They're the customer. And there's an established sort of path that they think this is the path that I need my kid to be on. And the reality is that yeah, okay, that might be the path, but what has it really proven to do? We are not known for developing world-class players. In my opinion, we've developed zero world-class players. So obviously there's something wrong with the establishment path here in America. But when you are a single voice going against that grain, yeah, it, it becomes very difficult. You, they might buy in for a little bit, but like you said, there's all these different things that you know, the parents are viewing as to what's happening in the establishment pathway. And they just tend to go back towards that way in believing that that's the right way. And so it never ends. The education piece never, ever ends. And just like we're talking about players having to suffer, the coach, if you want to get good at it, you have to suffer. 
that's just how it is. And a lot of people I understand completely, they don't want to put themselves through that. But yeah, I think, like you said, it's having the knowledge and expertise as to what entails a good development process from start to finish, and then being able to put in the time and the effort to go through the process of trying to educate these families as to what a good development process actually is. Yeah. And, and you nailed it. It's kind of like you're solo in this tiny little rowboat trying to go in a certain direction and you have these massive ocean waves that is the establishment narrative and these waves come crashing down on you constantly over and over and over and over again because they're doing quote unquote parent education as well by the marketing that they do, the propaganda that they do. And this is on a daily basis. New articles are written, new videos are published, new talking heads are on the TV or being streamed on the daily. And this is what your parents are being exposed to on the daily. And that is what we're all fight, having to fight against on the daily. And it's really quite unfortunate that this apparatus that is the media doesn't have a diversity of ideas or doesn't give enough attention or care to the subject to get other ideas in the fold. It's always the same story, the same ideas, the same agendas over and over and over again. And the ones that suffer end up being the kids because at the end of the day, the environment and the culture that this education, this media education is providing is one that is not player development friendly, to be frank. It's music to parents' ears, what they're hearing, but it does not help player development. It actually harms player development, in my opinion. Actually, I don't even want to say in my opinion. I think in fact, but you know how people are here. Oh, that's just your opinion, Gary. You need to be more humble. No. <laughs> I agree with you, Gary. I agree with you. We see all these players, man, the world stage. We've seen all these players at big clubs competing in the Champions League. Most of them grow up in an environment where they deal with extreme struggle and they have to overcome significant adversity to rise to where they are. And it, it comes down to there, in many cases for them, there's no other option. I have to make this work. Yeah. I have to make a career out of this. There's no other way for me, not only for me, but for my family. And then we yeah. look here and the path that we see that the establishment sort of narrative is, you know, it should be easy. It's soft. It's soft. And I think our young players severely suffer because of the culture that's in place. And maybe they have talent. Yeah. And the talent gets them to a certain point. But I think the reason why they're not able to really rise to the very, very top of the game is because they don't know how to suffer and handle all of the adversity that they're going to face trying to play in a profession that is truly a global competition. Yeah, I can hear the objections already. Ah, well, Joey, you're talking only about the 0.01% who are actually you know, going to be pro or have the potential of being pro. What about everybody else? You can't put everybody else through this sort of cauldron of competition. That ain't right. It's supposed to be fun and not competitive the way that you're describing it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the key thing here is, and I know you know this, it's like, no, I'm talking about everybody, even the ones who are not going to be professional soccer players. What are the life lessons that we're dealing with? Everybody's always talking about how sports is a good thing to put kids in because it teaches them a lot of life lessons in addition to just the sport itself. It teaches teamwork. It teaches competition. It teaches collaboration. It teaches, I don't know, 
how to get along with your mentor, you know, that mentor apprentice sort of relationship or coach student or teacher student sort of relationship. I mean, so many life lessons here. And I think that we have made it systematically softer and softer and softer as the years have gone by to the point where nobody wants to compete. And this is why, again, I go back to the media, they're propagating this culture of non-competition. And I don't know, it's kind of a chicken or an egg situation for me with respect to why is U.S. soccer so soft? You know, when they created the U.S. Soccer Development Academy, they started instituting all kinds of policies, the sideline policies, parents need to shut up, you can't say anything, you need to sit on the other side of, of the coaches. That one I kind of agree with, you know, but at, at the same time, they wanted to silence everybody on the sidelines, including the coaches, just be silent, don't say a goddamn word. And that contributes to this culture of softness. They also wanted to spread playing time a lot more. And I don't know if they started this and then the media latched onto it and said, yeah, this is amazing. And then the parents obviously latch onto that. Or if U.S. soccer slash MLS felt or feels public pressure to be soft, and so they are being soft, right? It's one or the other, or maybe it's both at the same time, yes? But the fact of the matter is that incredibly soft, nobody competes anymore. It's all okay. And this leads me into, I don't know if you read Eric Winalda's article that came out a week ago or so. So Eric Winalda, as I said many times, is a voice that is important should be heard. There's a reason the establishment doesn't like him. There's a reason the establishment media doesn't elevate him. There's a reason the establishment media and those wannabe establishment media kind of take every little opportunity they can to take pot shots at him and smear him. There's a reason for that. And that is because Eric in many areas goes against the status quo, goes against these sorts of things. And he mentioned it in his article, citing that youth club soccer is completely uncompetitive. And he is an advocate of, hey, the players should play high school and not be barred from playing high school soccer. And the reason that he cites is pressure. Yes, all of a sudden in high school soccer, the players feel a little bit more pressure because they're playing in front of their friends. They're playing in front of the student body. They're playing in a stadium that some high schools might get couple hundred people or a few hundred people or in certain scenarios, it might even break a thousand. And that is a pressure that is not felt by playing MLS next or playing in an academy where it's same old, same old. Everybody shuts up on the sidelines. There is no action. There's nothing at stake. There's no school pride at stake. There's no self pride at stake. It's play a game, whatever the score happens to be. It is, and there's no real consequences one way or another. So in that regard, awesome. But I think he's hinting at what you're saying. It's soft here, Joey, and there's no accountability at all. I have a lot of issues with some of the things that he wrote in the article, which I'll expound on at some point in the future, because I don't necessarily agree with everything, but he's poking at something there that I think there's truth in. Yeah. He's another one of those voices that goes against the grain a little bit and he gets attacked for it. And those waves are constantly crashing down on him, man. <laughs> but he keeps going, well, that, so credit to him. No, well, that's what happens to all of us who actually care and actually yeah. try and actually build things. And <laughs> it's another topic for another day, Joey. I want to ask you again, coming back to the top three players on the roster, what do you think about having them play up and what kind of friction is involved 
if or when those players play up. I've done that for a good portion of my career. The players that are at the top end of my roster at their own age, I'll give them opportunities to play up in age. I think, you know, for the most part, the parents of those players are happy. They're excited about that opportunity. The friction that you face is from the families on the team that they're playing up with. You know, they see it as, well, what is this younger kid doing coming up and playing with our team? This isn't going to help us. But again, it provides competition in a sense. You give that younger player the opportunity to go up. You give them the opportunity to adapt to playing with older kids. And if they're talented, usually that adaptation can happen pretty quickly and they're contributing at an older age, no problem. And now maybe the kids on the lower end of that older roster are having to compete with that kid on the younger roster. And that's where the competition within the club really starts to take place. And like we talked about earlier, a kid on the bottom end of the roster going down with the second team. That's where you create the competition within the club. And we see that across the world. That's the global standard across the world as to how to collectively as a club develop players. But here it's more of a foreign concept. Uh, But yeah, I think when you do that, you face friction from the families of the players that are on the older team when the kid goes and plays up. And again, it's an education process when you're trying to do that. Got it. What about, or maybe you haven't encountered this, but I have, what about situation where you have the player go and play up with another team, but they're not getting full games at that point. They're maybe the substitute. They're getting kind of bled into it. That Maybe they play 15 minutes a game. I don't know if you've experienced that, but that seems to be a source of friction as well. Uh, Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think so. I personally haven't really experienced that. I think the overall feeling is just they're they're very appreciative for the opportunity to go and play up. You know, I, I don't think, I think it's for the players that I've maybe done it with. I don't know if they even thought that that was a possibility, Mm. you know? So when it happens for them, it's like, oh, wow, this is something I didn't even know would even happen. And Mm. so they're appreciative of the situation. But I can see how, yeah, if there's a super talented player, like top, top level talent, and he goes up and he's playing with a team, the expectation may be that, yeah, he should start and he should play the whole game. And I can understand how there would be friction there. Because maybe they're really being pushed hard. Like the gap might be a lot, you know, and maybe they're not the starter. Maybe they come in as a sub or maybe they get subbed off regularly. And maybe the parent starts thinking after, not, no, well, not one time or not two times, but if this is constantly happening, that they're playing up, but those are the only minutes that they're getting, say over the course of three months or six months, then the parent, there's a little bit of tension there. It's like, why is he coming up here if he barely plays? No, just have him play his own age and have 90 minutes and score 15,000 goals or make 15,000 saves and have a clean sheet. Uh, this isn't good for my kid sort of thing. That's kind of the angle that I was going for and I've seen happen at times. Yeah. But I think for the most part, I think your case is the general one, right? Is they're appreciative that they have that ego fulfillment. It's kind of ironic that they talk about coaches having these massive egos and stuff, but the parents, I think have way bigger egos than the coaches do. I don't want to make enemies of any parents at all. I know they're only looking out for the best interests of their kid and doing the best that they can with the knowledge and information that they have in hand to that effect. But it is true right? It's like, obviously the kid is the center of their world and whatever is best for them is what should be done at all times. And so I get it. I do get it. One question, Joey, that would immediately come up from the general public because that's, you know, they got their information and education from quote unquote media is, well, guys, 
what age are you talking about here to have a competitive culture? Are we talking about 16 year olds? Are we talking about 13 year olds? Are we talking about, you know, just little old kids, eight, nine year olds. And obviously they have their preconceived notions of where this sort of philosophy applies and where it should not apply. Yeah. I think, I mean, the way that we're operating now at it's what U10. And I think it's the first two teams in a club where the kids are showing that they are competitive and they, they have aspirations to maybe play at a high level, you know, when they get older, I think they can do this sort of thing. You know, you, it's the club's responsibility, the coach's responsibility to build a competitive environment to maximize their potential as young players. The youngest I've coached is U8. And I think even there, they're capable of it, depending on the nature of the players on the team. But if they're showing the ambition, they're showing that they have that sort of committed attitude toward the game, then I think that, yeah, a competitive environment in the daily team environment can be built for them to experience these sorts of things. And it's good for them. It's not a bad thing. It's good for them. Yeah. I think that's the key message. You're looking out and trying to do what is good for them, good for yeah. the players. You're not trying to create this competitive cauldron and sharpen iron and all these negative connotations that come with a discussion like this. It's not like that at all. It's all love. It's all trying to do what is best for all of them. It is done with compassion, empathy knowing how to push the right buttons at the right time with a certain type of player because everybody's a little bit different and every age is a little bit different. So it's done with all of these things in mind, Joey. It's not a reckless sort of rigid, oh, we're competitive here and you need to work to be able to... No, it's not like that at all. It's very, very extremely warm-hearted and well-intentioned by Absolutely. anybody who's trying to... Well, no, I wouldn't say by anybody who's trying to do this, but certainly in your case, that that is true. Absolutely, man. And it's never, I don't think it's ever perfect, you know, like the coach has to, like we mentioned earlier, you are feeling out every day what buttons to push to get, you know, maybe today it's trying to get the best out of this, these few players on the roster. Maybe the next day it's trying to get the best out of this group in the roster. And you're constantly pushing different buttons. You know, you want the bottom of the roster to get better. You're trying to get them closer to the middle of the roster, the middle of the roster. You're doing whatever you can to get them to step up to the higher end of the roster. You're constantly looking for different tactics, different methods to get the most out of the group, because you know that if the collective is competing against each other, it benefits all of them. But I do agree with you, Matt. I think that, you know, we are vilified in a way and a lot of our actions are seen as like, we're trying to hurt players, which isn't the case at all. And I mean, I don't, I haven't recalled this, but I haven't seen a coach intentionally trying to like damage a player. You know, I've never seen that before. Yeah. I think maybe there's different levels of experience and there's that trial and error as a coach, like learning what methods you can use to make it work and make it be effective to get the best out of the players. You're learning that sort of thing. But I don't think anybody's trying to really damage the players. And in, in my experience, at least I've never seen that. Yeah. I think a lot of it is a function of experience. Yeah. When you're just starting out, you don't know what buttons to push and how hard and when and how often. And I don't want to say there's damage done to the player, but certainly it's not as good as 
you know, in year two when you're doing things, on year three when you're doing things, on year seven of experience when you're doing things, on year 10 of experience when you're doing things. So it is a learning process, no doubt. But I do agree with you that I don't think anybody, any coach, I mean, there might be some out there, right? But generally speaking, I don't think coaches are have bad intentions with anybody. I think they do feel a sense of responsibility for all the kids and the families that are under their charge. And yeah. I just wish that these narratives out there that vilify coaches with a broad brush, I wish those people would reconsider publishing that sort of stuff because it's just not representative of your profession, Joey. Yeah, 100%. Gary, if we can go back to playing up in age yeah, for a second, go for it. because I do this a lot, man. And I think I do it because I recognize that the reality is if, if you're talented at your own age and you play your own age your whole career, mm, like, okay, great, but I don't think you're maximizing your true potential in this country playing your own age and probably in the world. I think in most cases, a lot of professional players at some point in their career, they play up in age. And, you know, like we've talked about, when you play up in age, yeah, maybe you start off getting five minutes. And I've done that before. You start off getting five minutes. And I think in my perspective, it's like, yeah, you put them in that situation because you know they're going to suffer at first because there is that physical gap. There's probably maybe it's a little bit faster. The speed of the game's a little bit faster, right? Maybe the, the physical contact is a little more forceful and the player has to adapt to that. And so they start off with five minutes, but the opportunity to do that is so valuable for the player because if you just keep at it and you do adapt to the force of the physicality of the game or the speed of the play at the older age, now you have taken a big step in your development as a player. And man, I don't know why, maybe because I've sort of watched it in the MLS academies, uh, watching Brian push players up in age and I saw the benefit of it, but I just, I truly believe in it because it's something that if a player is going to be maybe in the youth national team picture or D1 collegiate picture or professional picture, that is a step that you have to take in my opinion. And yeah. if you're just playing your own age, it's like, mm, okay, good. That's great. But it's nothing special. Yeah. And from a scouting perspective, because we get videos all the time sent by parents to us. Oh, my, look at my kid. You know, what do you think? One of the first things that, well, one of the things that always comes to mind is, okay, what's the level of this kid's competition? Who is he playing against? Is he playing up? Is he playing his own age? Because if you want to do great talent assessment, most of the ultra talented players, the guys who are on a trajectory to the moon, so to speak. They may not get to the moon, Joey. They may crash and burn, no question. But at a certain stage, right, they're on this trajectory. They are playing up and they are stretching themselves. And I'm glad that you kind of brought up Brian because it would have escaped me. I give a lot of credit to Brian actually having a meaningful impact nationwide with the work that he did with that famous team and then the work that he did at Chivas USA and the work that he did at, at the LA Galaxy because he was notoriously aggressive with having individual players play up an age or two ages and even playing the entire team up a year or two and still they had to adapt but still at the end of the day performing I mean Brian got to you know the academy finals there was one particular year when he got to the Academy final against FC Dallas, his team was playing essentially two years up, which I don't know if that's happened pre, no, I know it hasn't happened, but I don't know if it's, if it's happened since, let me put it to you that way. But he was doing this way back in 2012 already. And people took note 
and noticed. U.S. soccer took note and noticed. And listen, I wasn't privy. I wasn't there in person at the U.S. soccer offices, but I can tell you with a large degree of certainty that one of the main influences and factors as to why they were pushing all of the MLS academies and all of the team clubs in the academy to play their players up was due to Brian's work, uh, honestly speaking. And, and yes, he's my brother, fine, but he needs to get some credit at some point in time. And who else is going to give it to him? Yeah. Now that I think about it further, Gary, that influence was exactly why that is such a big part of what I try to do now in my work, playing players up. I know that that's, that's an, a necessary step for them if they're going to be, you know, if they show the talent that they could have a career beyond club soccer, that's a necessary step for them. They have to play up in age. Yeah. And half that team basically became pros. Half of the players on that team became professional soccer players and are still professional soccer players to this day, grinding it out, working it out, carving their path on the pro side of the equation. And I don't think that's normal to have one team graduate. I don't know what, I don't even know off the top of my head, five, six pros off of just one team or seven pros, maybe more, but wild, wild stuff. And, and a lot of it is due to, yeah, him saying the team needs to play up because it doesn't make sense that we're just smashing teams every weekend. And it doesn't make sense that it's too easy, for example, for Efra, Efrain Alvarez to just score whenever he wanted to score or do whatever it is that he wanted to do with the ball. No, Efra, you need to be challenged. Let's put you in a situation where you cannot do those things whenever it is that you want to do those things. Again, having the players in a situation where they have to suffer. Yeah, they have to suffer. And then try to they adapt. Have to they have to suffer, man. They have to suffer. I even remember there were games where Efra would not start or wouldn't play all that much. You remember the, the rivalry we had with Golden State? FC Golden State had giant man children because that's the model, generally speaking, here yep. in the States is try to find the biggest, fastest, strongest players that you can who have at least a base level of talent to play football, obviously. So yeah, we were playing against giants every week and there were moments where it's like, hey, the game is not for Efra. And Brian chose another player to play central midfielder. And again, not because of winning at all costs at all. It had to do with, hey, Efra, you're not necessarily ready. So keep working, buddy. He gave the player that sense of not being entitled right. all the time. But yeah, there, there was a little bit of friction there that was caused. And not from the player. Usually it's never the players that have an issue. Usually, Because usually the players have a good rapport or something with the coach. There's a great bond there and there is no issue because the coach and the player understand each other and there's good communication. You know where the friction comes from, Joey. It comes from the parents. The parents, yeah. why is my kid not playing? What are you doing? This is not good for the player. You are damaging his psychology. You are not giving him confidence. The player needs confidence. You're destroying the player's confidence. Nonsense. Nonsense, guys. It's just short-sighted and they only look at one weekend or a few weekends or one tournament. And all of a sudden, all these conclusions come to their heads and they don't see the six month trajectory, the year trajectory, the multi-year trajectory. There's like a fog in front of them because they don't know what's out in front. The actual practitioners know. Yeah. That's the hardest part to communicate. I think with parents is that multi-year trajectory that you have the players on because they're not going to see it right away. And it takes a little bit of trust 
in the person that's working with the players. No, that is the key. That is the key. You have to trust. You have to say, hey, this person has our best interests at heart. We're in this together. They're not going to misguide me. I'm entrusting you with, with my kid. And yeah. frankly speaking, Joey, a great proportion of parents' decision-making has to rely on that because fact of the matter is you do not know. This is not your area of expertise. I'm being frank. And yeah. even though we've developed and continue to develop this parent education program, uh, the 343 Masterclass, yes, we will get parents up to speed on a lot of things really fast that would have taken them years, years and years and years to acquire some of this knowledge. We'll get them up to speed way quicker. But even then, even then, you are going to have to rely on and trust people to guide you because you're not a practitioner. This is not what, this is not your job. You don't do this for a living. So you don't know, no, you have some right. knowledge, but you don't know, no. hundred percent, man. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> All right, brother. Any parting comments? No, I think that was a good conversation, Gary. I think we touched on a lot of valuable stuff. You know, maybe an, our next conversation could be, I think we talked about this when we met last, that this profession, no matter what it is, whether you're a youth coach, a pro coach, or have a job in football at the professional level, amateur level, whatever it is, all, all it is is problems. You're constantly fighting fires. That's all it is. There's minimal good feeling. It's you wake up in the morning, you look at your phone, and you've got all these text messages or emails, and 99% of the time and 99% of them, it's bad news. It's yeah. like, there's a problem and we have to solve a problem. It's never like, <laughs> oh, great stuff. You know, you, you're going to get a raise or great stuff. We got admitted into this turn. Like that's a minimum. That almost never happens. It's always a fucking problem. It's not glamorous at all. Yeah. When it comes to the job, the best time is when I'm on the field. I'm not on my phone. I'm just working with the players. All of that yeah. stuff kind of goes away and you're just working with the players. And like, like you shared, it, the problem isn't the players. The players love it, man. The yeah. players love it. But it's when you leave the field and you're dealing, well, not necessarily when you leave the field because you might still deal with some of that when you're on the field. Mm. But yeah, it's all of outside of the game, outside of the practices, when you're working with the players, that's where all the fires start to come into play. Yeah, I think eventually you guys have a PhD in psychology. Honestly, pretty <laughs> crazy. Well, that's it for today, guys. Thank you for listening. A reminder for coaches, you can get both the free and premium coaching programs at 343coaching.com. Don't let anyone tell you your teams can't win by playing dominant possession-based football while also developing individual players to the highest levels. Nonsense. We've proved it at every single level and so have hundreds of serious member coaches across the country. Now that we've moved on to the pro level, we're delivering everything we've learned in the program. Don't wait and continue delaying getting on a proven path. And parents, 343masterclass.com is where you want to go to get a working compass for navigating the American soccer landscape with your player. It's pretty bad out there, but let our experience guide you. Lastly, if you're coaching 7v7, we've got you covered there as well. Go to 7v7coaching.com. Until next time, cheers everyone and keep building.